In the midst of populist politics in many places throughout the world, society has felt more polarised, and trigger events have seen the level of hate crimes increase. Now, as ever, it is vitally important that we take note of those working to make hate crime studies more accessible and impactful. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Neil Chakraborty is a professor of criminology, head of school and director of the Centre for Hate Studies at the University of Leicester. He has authored more than 50 peer-reviewed publications within the field of hate crime and has been commissioned by numerous funding bodies to lead research studies which have shaped hate crime policy and scholarship. He is series editor of Palgrave Hate Studies, chair of the research advisory group at the Howard League for Penal Reform and sits on the advisory boards of Tell Mummer the International Network for Hate Studies, and the British Society of Criminology Hate Crime Network. So, Professor Neil Chakraborty, welcome to Justice Focus. Hi, thanks for having me. No, thank you. Thank you for making the time to to have a chat. And um, just before things get a little crazy before the beginning of of next year, how how are you feeling about the new world of online teaching? I'm good. I'm good. None of us would have wanted to be in this situation, but we are where we are. And, you know, I think I'm heartened by the way in which colleagues are coming together, lifting collective spirits. I'm heartened by the way in which students understand the position that we're all in. And I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful that collectively as a community of staff and students and people who want to make the world a better place, um, we can make this work. Yeah. So I'm optimistic, Omar, I'm optimistic. Yeah, well, there's, there's good brains trying to, trying to make it happen and we'll all model through, right? Um, Great. And so, so I want to obviously talk about your specialism in it being hate studies. That's so obviously a, um, you know, a deep topic and one that can cause a lot of anxiety. When you go to dinner parties and things, when you're allowed to go to them, not, not that you can now, are you, you like me, do people, people sound super interested at the beginning and then after two minutes of explaining, they think, oh, I'm not inviting this guy to the party again because there's a big downer. Is that what happens to you or do, have you managed to, you know, pose it in a way where people, you know, come along passionately with you rather than getting depressed about the, the horrors of it all? That's the best question. Um, <laughs> yes and no. So sometimes it can be a conversation killer. Oh, what do you yeah. think? Oh, I'm a criminologist. Oh, that gets people... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I've learned over the years, sometimes I feel really uncomfortable saying that I'm a criminologist hmm. because it takes you down um, a path that sometimes you don't want to go down with conversations. Hmm. It's hmm. funny, you could say that you're a medic, you could say that you're a pharmacist, you could say that... Um, I don't know, you could say that you're pretty much anything and nobody would challenge yeah. your knowledge. Yeah. Um, they know better than you. And yet in the world of criminology, it seems that everybody knows better than them. So yeah. that, that can lead to interest, interesting conversations, but at least it's a conversation to start, mm, generally mm. anyway. Yeah. Um, when people probe you, when you start talking about what you actually do, uh, I think the, the concept of hate crime at one level can feel quite fascinating to people, and hate is quite an emotive, yeah. emotive concept, but... It can be a conversation killer. And I often find that people are surprised when they meet me in person and say, oh, you're actually quite smiling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. that's a surprise, yeah. I mean, you know. Um, uh, the, the, the focus on hate crime doesn't make you a hateful person. Yeah. Um, 
So I think that surprises people. But yeah, I think it provokes uh, mixed reactions. Yeah, yeah. And had it always been your plan to become a professor? Were you always very academic? That was the plan? Was it always within hate studies? Or have you sort of veered around from, from what you no, wanted to be when you I grew never up? I had a plan. <laughs> I mean, quite aimless. Um, yeah. Sincerely, I, I was lucky enough to be pretty good at school and, 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 and grasp ideas quite quickly. Um, but I had no idea what I was going to do. I knew that I wanted to get to university. Um, and I was lucky enough to go to university. I studied a law degree there and was pretty um, convinced from an early stage that I wasn't going to pursue the law as a career. Mm. Um, it, just, it, it just didn't feel right in any, in any way for me. And I remember going to speak to a careers advisor in the second year. Um, well, it was my personal tutor. They doubled up as careers advisors in right. those days. Yeah. And um, I said, I feel a little bit lost in terms of future direction. And it was quite, quite pompous. Um, <laughs> and I got through the door and mm. uh, I said, oh, Mr. Feldman, I'm not sure. And he said, well, it's Professor Feldman to you. And so I felt really intimidated <laughs> by that. Yeah. Um, and anyway, I spoke to other people and I was advised not to pursue a career in academia because I'd need to look a bit different and sound a bit different. Did um, people literally uh, said that to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah in, in person. And wow. that, I think the thing that's most disappointing about that, Omar, it isn't just what they said. It was my reaction to that. I just thought, oh, actually, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, and I kind of normalised that. Yeah. Even at school, I was an outsider. I grew up in an area of very few fellow ethnic minorities. So I kind of normalised that. I went to university and I saw kind of the academic world as a white landscape. Mm. Um, people generally did sound different to me and they certainly looked different to me um it was only when i came to leicester i decided to do a master's in criminology because i enjoyed the criminology element of my law degree right and just something really connected and i loved it um i was lucky enough to get a two-week research contract after my master's and that two weeks led to two months another two mm -hmm. months here and there i think with nine or ten short-term contracts yeah but even then i wasn't sure what i was going to do so i just stumbled into this career um, stumbled into a PhD because I was lucky enough to focus on some, something that was very close to my heart. Mm. So, yeah, there's never been a, a defined career path saying mm. I want to be an academic or I want to be a professor. I love what I do and I feel enormously privileged to do what I do, but yeah. it's never the plan. Have you ever pulled the professor title out when somebody's mis misused your name? <laughs> Have you ever caught yourself? I used to be scared of pulling out the doctor title in case somebody <laughs> thought I could genuinely help yeah. them, um, in case of an emergency. Um, and, yeah, I don't know, the professor tag, I love it. Yeah. It sits uncomfortably in some ways because we all have preconceptions of what a professor kind of looks like mm -hmm. and acts like, and I don't really buy into that hierarchy. But, look, I feel really proud of it. Yeah, of course. It's not something that I really makes that much of a difference to yeah. everyday life. Yeah. And thinking back to, to the beginning of, of your work on hate crime, do you feel like the landscape around this particular area of, of work has changed a lot since when you first started? I think it has in many ways. I think when I first started out, hate crime seemed quite peripheral to mm. mainstream criminology. It's something, it was something that um, uh, I think had attracted more inquiry in other parts of the world, particularly North America. Mm. Um, here in the UK, I guess in the aftermath of murder of Stephen Lawrence and mm. implementation of McPherson recommendations, we started to see some renewed interest in certain aspects of hate crime, but that concept, that term, um, wasn't, wasn't really used and didn't really mean anything. 
Um, and then things started to grow, mainly as a result of high-profile tragedies, which is a shame. Yeah, always does. From a tragic event, yeah. as, a, as, from other, for, for, as a result of other factors. Mm. But, yeah, I think things have changed somewhat. I think um, there's more public awareness. Uh, there's certainly more academic interest, mm. I think, within my discipline of criminology. I think it's much more as part of the mainstream. There's, there's, there's people up and down this country and many other countries who were looking at different aspects of this mm. within uh, their PhDs or within their master's studies. So that gives me hope for the future. There's much more academic evidence, much more scrutiny, much more empirical inquiry. So, so yeah, that gives me cause for hope. Mm. You talk about sort of disaster and horrible things causing things to move forward, and it's, you know, it's hard not to talk about the events of this summer. And um, I'm just wondering how how you've experienced it because I know you've you've done lots of uh, sort of public facing work and been on the media a lot to to talk about various issues related to this. And you know I've spoken to other people that are working either as post colonial decolonial scholars or people working in critical race theory or practitioners working in equality and human rights. And lots of people have found it actually really difficult. You know where they where they're expecting. Where, where there's expectation on them to have the answer or some kind of pressure of the increased exposure, how, how have you how have you been yourself? You know, as much as I'd like to hear about the actual topic and and what you've said to the public, how how have you experienced it in in this summer? Yeah, another great question. I think on a personal level, yeah. and I and I won't be alone in this. I'm I I found it deeply troubling. Not obviously just. Uh, the murder of George Floyd, yeah. but just the the reaction to it, the way, the, the kind of polarised reaction that, mm. that I've seen. I'm, so much of this has been deeply upsetting. Yeah. Um, some of the tokenistic responses that we've seen on social media mm. um, have been, I think they've been quite alarming, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, there's been, yeah, defensiveness. Um, yeah, so all sorts of reactions. Um I think, yeah, it's hard to kind of make sense mm. of that landscape and, and to figure out, okay, where, how do I feel personally yeah. about this? And where's my place here? Like, not just as a citizen, but as an educator, mm -hmm. as an academic, as a scholar. Um, I, I, I could have felt more uncomfortable if my place of work had heaped a load of expectation on me mm. as one of the few senior kind of leaders from a minority ethnic background. Yeah. Some organisations, I think, could put a lot, lot of heat their way and say, "Okay, it's on you mm. this to kind of take us in a new direction." And I've never felt that. I, I have um, some leadership responsibility in that arena, mm. but it's what I've chosen to do, and it's a collective responsibility. I think all of us own that space, irrespective of where we come from. If we work within a university and we're thinking of decolonisation or we're thinking about um, taking actions that can make a, a, a lasting, mm. sustained difference, then that's on all of us. And I'm really pleased, actually, that at Leicester, that seems to have been recognised. So mm. we're coming mm. from a good place. So professionally, yeah. I don't feel as uncomfortable as I might have. But certainly on a personal level... I think it comes at a time when we've just seen so many divisions bed in mm. for all sorts of different reasons, not just here in the UK, but across the world. So things are toxic, they're divisive, and this was just yet another example 
um, of that. And the fact that it surprised so many people that these things can happen. Of course, we can be shocked, but I'm not sure that that many of us who know this terrain were all that surprised. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, again, that's quite disappointing, the fact that this has surprised so many people. Yeah. Um, if we open our eyes, these things are there and they're very evident. Yeah. And, you know, in your book, which I want to ask you about um, a little more in a, in a bit, you talk about trigger events and and that's, you know, there can be trigger events for positive change and trigger events that increase hate crime. And so, yeah, I wondered what you what you think about where we are at the moment and this this sort of leaning towards populism and racism and xenophobia that has, you know, in the book you specifically talk about the election of Trump and Brexit as trigger events. So I wonder you know, how you're feeling at the moment, whether we're just in like one swing of the pendulum where we're becoming much more populist and whether it will go back the other way or, uh, you know, not that inevitably it will go back, but we have to fight for it to happen. But I just wondered where you where you are in your thinking around. Again, I think that's a really excellent question. I'm not sure. I think that's the honest answer. Mm. I think over the past 18 months, these trigger events are coming thick and fast, mm. aren't they? Mm. Um, and they become part of a, a cycle, almost a continuum. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's really dangerous. So if we're thinking of it in terms of a pendulum, as you've just mapped out, it's very hard to see that pendulum swinging back when you see such uh, such velocity, yeah. such such um, and, and such events of such magnitude as well. Um, so yeah. what, something that really troubles me is the fact that we can become almost numb mm. to these trigger events because they're happening so often. Um, and we read about them in such a distilled form. So we might watch a 30-second video clip on the disaster in Beirut yesterday and mm. we know everything about it. Yeah. Um, we might, um, and, and then we move on. Mm. And then next week we read about another tragic event, um, but it takes the form of a very short kind of clip on a website or a blog post, and then we move on. So the way in which we're getting our information, the way in which we digest this information, and the way in which we process it and then move on. Yeah. Um, I think all of that, um, that all of that troubles me, and it makes me think that it's going to be harder than we might have anticipated to bring that pendulum back. Mm. Yeah, it's so difficult. And uh, I've been speaking to lots of people during lockdown about, you know, dealing with so many pieces of information and feeling like you have to keep on top of all the information, you know, both about yeah. COVID, but also, you know, people that are interested in other parts of the world or whatever it might be where, you, you know, you feel genuine empathy for people, but there's, there's just so much and, and sort of the good citizen in you wants to be able to keep abreast of everything, but actually it's kind of just not possible to, for, you, for us to hold it all together. And um, I don't know how you found sort of channeling your energy towards something where you can have a genuine impact rather than just be, you know, the topic area you work on, you could just feel completely stressed the entire time, you know, at the situation. So like, how do you, how do you find an avenue to, to sort of focus in positive sort of impact yeah. or energy? Yeah. yeah, because otherwise it can feel too much. Yeah. I think we're all at risk of that. And certainly I felt it um, during the lockdown period, um, Absolutely. In, in academic terms, it was easier for me. A couple of years ago, and maybe four or five years ago, I took a conscious decision to take a step back from um, research that I felt was um, 
important, but potentially the kind of research that wouldn't reach policymakers mm. um, and practitioners. And I wanted to give more energy to that kind of work, even if it was small scale research, um, localized studies. Mm. Um, that for me has been the priority of late because I wanted to do work that I can see genuinely making a difference. Mm. Um, and I found that really rewarding. Um, that doesn't mean that other um, other research can't have value, but I felt certainly within the early part of my academic career that I was conducting research uh, in order to generate academic publications. Yeah. I was conducting yeah. research in order to build a career. I believed in it, of course, mm. but that for me, um, it, it, it wasn't motivating me, it wasn't inspiring me, it wasn't helping me sleep at night. If you're working within this field, you can't achieve everything. But for me personally, I wanted to do st- something um, that could provide some solutions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I felt that a lot of the academic work that we do, that, that we do is sometimes meaningless to those uh, who are directly affected by the kinds of problems that we're writing about. Mm. And that for me isn't good enough. So I've really tried to make my work accessible. I've tried to, um, to make the ideas engaging, make the recommendations workable within a climate of austerity. Yeah. Um, yeah. To focus just as much on training as I do on, on, on writing. So, so things like that have helped me to feel that my work has value. Mm. And when you, when you say training, what kind of work are you, are you talking about then? So um, I set up the Centre for Hate Studies back in 2014. Mm-hmm. And we part of the mission is to deliver training to frontline practitioners. Right. So initially yeah. that was face-to-face training. So mm-hmm. we get practitioners from different sectors. Um, so not just criminal justice practitioners, but healthcare mm-hmm. um, providers, people in social care, local authorities, um, uh, different partners, uh, but all of whom have responsibilities for working within this terrain of hate crime, either through supporting victims, working with perpetrators, mm. working within communities. We bring them together and deliver accessible training, and we get feedback on that training so we can refine it and make it as, as directly relevant to those organisations as possible. Mm. Um, and that's been really effective. Yeah, I think... The challenge for us is getting people in a room, and you will know this from the background that you've got, Omar, mm. that sometimes when you're in a busy job, you just don't have time for training. Yeah. And you don't have time or budget to travel somewhere for training. Mm-hmm. So in the last two years, we've, we've done this digitally. So we have a whole suite of digital training programs um, on different areas of hate crime and extremism, and they're all available for free mm. um, online. So um, that that has helped us to, to reach a much wider audience of uh, international as well as national policymakers and professionals. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is to, to look at sort of that intersection between policy and practice and how, you know, we can get the, the two different sides and or sometimes it's three or four different sides who are working in the same subject area to work together or realise that the cool stuff that's going on in this slightly different discipline but on the same topic yeah. area. And so, yeah, I just wondered if you... You know, if you'd like to re- reflect any more on sort of that engagement of, the, you know, the academy with practitioners and whether you've noticed there are any particular ways that um, you think frontline practitioners could, um, you know, aid the work of researchers and, and vice versa and where we can just sort of help each other out a little bit more so that we can achieve 
some impact. So much, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, I remember certainly in the earlier part of my career, but even now I go to fewer conferences than, than I did, but I'd go to these events and I'd often feel intimidated in a room because people were giving a paper and they tend to, to use language that I didn't really understand mm, yeah. um, and I didn't really get. And I'd feel that was on me, not the speaker, that mm. was on me mm. for not being smart enough to really understand their theorising. Um, but I remember talking to practitioners who'd sometimes use whatever limited budget they'd have to come along to, to a mainstream academic conference, which, to be honest, they're very expensive. Yeah. Um, and they got very little value. They'd go to papers that they didn't really understand. They felt ostracized during coffee breaks and, mm. and kind of lunch meetings and, and dinners um, because they can feel quite cliquey. Um, and, and the academic community in particular would tend to gravitate towards one another. Um, so I was aware from quite an early stage that something wasn't quite working here mm. um, in that relationship. And then as increasingly I started to present research findings to practitioner audiences, I, I found that they wanted um, they wanted reports to be structured in a different way to what I was used to, mm. and they wanted recommendations that they could work with straight away rather than things that, that might have an impact in, in 18 months, 24 yeah. months. Yeah. And that all sounds blindingly obvious now, but at the time that was a real step change. Um, and I remember going to practitioner events and really enjoying them, actually. Hmm. But they'd often have a dig at the academic community. <laughs> yeah. um, and, yeah, and I was uncomfortable with that as well. So I, I feel that sometimes um, we're speaking in different tongues when mm. we don't need to. So trying to think of ways to come together is, is, is really vital. Now, in a funny way, the, the, the pandemic has, has given us little choice. I don't think anybody has vast amounts of money to invest in in major events so yeah. it really forces you to think quite smartly about how to engage people um things like what you do podcasts are a great connector you know they they, they help to disseminate information in a way that we're not always um familiar with and i love that because it's completely accessible mm. um but it's forcing us to think about events in a different way i've been to a few virtual events i don't know if you have over mm -hmm. to, yeah. to just see how they work and, and how connected people can, can be and i think they're really encouraging actually um yeah but yeah i guess this will differ for every different academic and for different disciplines but i certainly think that um we can use our voice in a way that resonates with, with the audiences we purportedly want to engage with. I think that's probably the key for me. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, makes complete sense to me as well. And, and, you know, reflecting on some of the things you just said there about being accessible, I read your latest book. We've mentioned the book a couple of times now. I should tell everybody what the title is. So you, you've recently written a book alongside uh, Stevie J. Harvey, Hardy, excuse me, um, which is called Blood, Threats and Fears, The Hidden Worlds of Hate Crime Victims. And yeah, I found it extremely accessible. It's in, you know, it is an academic book, but it's in short chapters that are very succinct, but get to the detail very quickly and written very accessible language. And yeah, I can see why, um, you know, I could see this is a kind of book a practitioner could pick up and and read very quickly. And there's there's people, you know, even researchers who are deep into epistemology and things like that. You know, they've got lots of things to to 
to read and actually making it, it, it these sh shorter chapters in a very accessible way means that um, I think, yeah, it, it's it's getting across important messages much more efficiently. And so with, without me blithering on about it, it'd be great if you could um, just give a, a brief overview of, of the book and the process and, and co-writing it together and how you found, you know, how you find the process of co-writing. And then I've got a few questions about it, but yeah, yeah. if you could go for it. Okay. Uh, first off, thank you. That's really kind of you um, to, to, to say the book meant a lot to me and to Stevie, my co-author. Mm. Um, probably I've written, and it's my eighth book, I think. And, and this was certainly the most, most important for me because it's based on the testimonies of more than 2,000 people mm. just over 2,000 people and these are 2,000 people who haven't lived ordinary lives they've lived amazing lives but they're all very different and they're all flawed and that's another thing that is really important to recognise about all of us like yeah. all of us including victims of hate crime are flawed but these are people who have um, experienced hostility um, in different different contexts different forms mm -hmm. um and it's had different impacts on them. I think all of these stories had, um, they had different impacts on us as co-authors, as researchers. Mm. Um, but I think the one kind of unifying theme throughout all of these stories is that very few of these victims had shared their stories with anybody else. Yeah. Uh, relatively few had reported incidents to the police or any other agencies. And very few had shared these incidents, these stories in any depth at all. So it feels really humbling um, when you're sat next to somebody and you're listening to them open up. Um, and yeah, that was probably the most rewarding aspect of, of doing this book. Um, and I can say some more about that, obviously. Mm. In terms of your question about the process of co-authoring, yeah. again, many of my books have been co-authored, not all, but some. Um, and... I've been very lucky to work with people who I have a very kind of close working relationship with. And, and, and this one with Stevie was, was no different. I mean, we've complimented each other for many years mm. as a research team. Um, and yeah, I think having complete trust in your co-author um, is imperative. Otherwise there's just no point in, in doing things. Yeah. So yeah, that, that helped us to, to get this off the ground. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. These start with the sort of reflection of, of, um, how everybody's flawed and, and not in the fact that people are flawed, but sort of the reflecting on the individual. And there's a whole chapter there about looking at the positionality of the researchers as well. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing that a little, little more, but it's, it's still not something that you see in most books, I'd say. And so I wondered if you'd like to say anything about sort of the acknowledging of one's own positionality um, yeah. when, when doing research. Yeah. It's something that I've reflected on for many years because I've never, I've, I've read so much about insider-outsider relationships mm. in the context mm. of undertaking research and people have different takes on this. To what extent do you need shared identity characteristics with a research participant in order to engage in a frank and honest discussion about their experiences? Mm -hmm. And there are, there are benefits of that insider positioning. There are benefits of being an outsider as well and yeah. being able to ask kind of honest, truthful and sometimes naive questions. Um, but I'm also conscious that you can never be a truly an insider mm. um, because by virtue of our, our multiple identities, we've all got differences and we've all lived different lives. And I've never assumed to have the, to, to share the same kinds of 
challenges um, that, that, that any of my research participants have. And Stevie was certainly in that, that, that same position. So we came from a starting point of thinking, okay, we need to, to, to work up a position of trust um, mm. within uh, the communities that we want to engage with. And that took months and months. So as the research got underway, it wasn't a case of approaching gatekeepers. I mean, we have reservations about doing research through gatekeepers anyway. Mm. Um, but it, it became clear that if we wanted to engage with the full diversity of, of communities here in Leicester, which is where we started the research upon which the book is based, we needed to, to spend time in places that, that weren't always familiar. So that included taxi ranks, um, mm. restaurants, yeah. Uh, late night takeaways. Uh, Stevie started doing a Zumba class with Muslim women. Um, <laughs> wow! You know, like yeah. all sorts of different things, and like not as intruders, mm. um, but as 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 invite guest people with with no vested interest. We didn't go in there saying we want to interview people. Mm -hmm. We just we were very honest with, in terms of who we were um, and, and and what we want, what, what we were there for, what we wanted to do. And it took months of of talking to people, engaging with people, spending time in homeless shelters walking on the streets that, that people live and, mm -hmm. and just chatting to them, looking through their eyes. And then when people were comfortable talking to us about their experiences of hate crime, then they do so. Um, but that shared um, experience of just spending time with people was so valuable. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully that's reflected within the book itself. We didn't want to be research tourists. We didn't want to go into communities ask some questions and then walk away yeah so in many cases we've we've built friendships with people uh in many cases it's very difficult to draw the line as well and, mm. and yeah that's something i'm happy to talk about but yeah i just thought for the purposes of the book it was really important to reflect on all of that yeah um because i don't really see that honesty in many of the academic publications within this field yeah and it's difficult to rain so i hope that somebody will be able to read that and think okay yeah, I've now got a better sense of how this might work for me. Mm. I mean, you just mentioned it, but I'd, yeah, I would love to hear a bit more about that tension between, you know, if you're really investing in a community so in an honest way and don't just disappear afterwards, <clears throat> how do you maintain that balance between friendship and professional? Um, yeah. yeah. How's that, has, has that? Have you had any particularly tricky moments with that? I, I have, Omar, but I think that's all good because... Mm. You, you need to learn from that yeah. in order yeah. to, to make sure that yeah. you, you feel comfortable with, with your response. I think one thing that I learned very quickly um, is that you have to be really honest with your research participants. And honesty includes saying that this process of having a conversation, having an interview, that won't solve your problem mm. necessarily. I'm not here to be the problem solver and I can't necessarily fix things. I can listen mm -hmm. and I can share your stories with people who are in a position to do something about it. And I can work with those people to help them respond more effectively. So yeah, I, I, I've always tried to steer clear of making empty promises because mm -hmm. I think that gets us nowhere. And generally that's tended to work well. Invariably there will be instances where people feel that, you can help them more than you can. Mm, mm. Um, and that's inevitable, particularly in this field, where you're listening to stories, as I've said, they haven't been shared before. Um, yeah. And some some of the, the, the people that I've worked with have felt incredibly vulnerable, incredibly isolated, 
um, and they've wanted you to do more. And yeah, that mm-hmm. can be uncomfortable, yeah. but that's why we're in this field to sometimes have those uncomfortable conversations yeah. um, and not to leave people in the lurch. I think it's harder still when you get contacted by a complete stranger, and that happens to us quite a lot, mm. where you've got people suffering in another part of the country and they're familiar with your work and they get in touch with you and they're sharing their experiences. Aside from signposting them to, to sources of support, it's really hard to yeah. know what you can do personally for them. And as I say, it's really uncomfortable, but it's an inevitability when you're, when you're doing work within this field. Yeah. Yeah, and... Must be so tricky. It's quite sort of an, an emotional load as well to to deal with if people are, are really opening up and um, yeah, especially if you don't you know you, you want to make it better for them. I'm sure, but it, that's that's not what you're able to do. So um, have you have you felt like maybe you know in these areas of research where we are dealing with really heavy topics that maybe the research world needs to to catch up with some of the other parts of the world where they recognise that. Do you need some kind of super, you know, when psychologists um, do certain kind of work, they'll always have a supervision with somebody else that they sort of debrief what happened and they get, even though it wasn't them that went through the trauma, it was kind of a trauma to listen to it. And actually you need to offload that and share it somehow. And I mean, have you, have you had those structures in place anywhere or do you, do you, do you envisage a future where that's recognized within the Academy? I, I think, Another excellent point, and I'm not sure it is recognised within the academy to, to anywhere like the extent that it should be and could be. So, yeah, I think that that's a really important point. Within my own experiences, I haven't done that. Mm. Um, I know others who have, who follow similar paths to that, and I think it's been of real value to them. Um, and everybody has different coping strategies. Of course, yeah. Um, and everybody has different uh, interpretations of what is stressful mm. and what, what, what is difficult. Um, some people, I, I feel that I'm naturally empathetic, but I also feel that I'm quite good at um, compartmentalising mm. my emotions um, in a way that you kind of have to when you're juggling lots of responsibilities. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a father first and foremost, I'm a husband, I'm a son, um, mm. and then I'm a researcher yeah. um, and a scholar, you know, so you've got... So it's leaving it at the office. Sorry? So just kind of being able to leave it at the office. Yeah, yeah. in part, but not completely, because that, that makes me feel, that, that gives a sense of, uh, of greater detachment than I think is true. Mm. I don't think you can leave things at the office, nor do I think it's healthy mm. to do that. But I think you can take the positives from an emotional experience mm. and use those to good effect without it draining you. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know how to describe that process, mm. nor do I think it will be the same for everybody. So I can only speak personally. Yeah. Um, certainly with all of my uh, research staff or doctoral students, what you've described, that process of debriefing, mm. um, that's something that we follow and that's something that, that we do as much as we can mm. um, because you need to know that somebody's somebody's with you. Um, but for me personally, I've, I've tried to kind of like uh, relax in yeah. a different way, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's how things work. I haven't really explained that process. No, I... Well. No, I, no, I think you haven't. It, it is completely individual and, you know, 
maybe the way I introduced it was, you know, yeah, a, a, a loading structure. It's space in the academy mm. to think about that, though, mm. for sure, and that might attract more scholars to different ways of working. Yeah. Um, because we need people to, to kind of go deep with their empirical inquiries. Um, and if we're encouraging people to go deep, to engage at a grassroots level rather than superficially, mm. then it's incumbent on us to also find strategies to support um, what we're often early career researchers doing that work. So, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. great. Okay. Um, and just to, to go back to the book again, if that's all right, uh, because yeah. I wanted to, you know, I wouldn't usually ask people about definitions, and don't worry, I'm not going to put you on the spot to give exact <laughs> one. But the reason I bring it up is because, you know, at the end of the book, you do emphasize the importance of the definition that you offer, which is a, a, a newer, wider definition. Um, and it's, it seems to me that it speaks to this, this urge you have to be more practical. Um, and well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, yeah, it's a, you mentioned it being widened and simplifying the definition of what hate crime is. So it's more inclusive of other yeah. things like microaggressions and things like that. So yeah, rather than trotting out the definition, I'd wondered whether you'd yeah want to talk about why it's important to sort of widen it and what you mean by including microaggressions in hate crime. Because hate, yeah. cri hate crime seems like this huge evil thing that must be, um, you know, a, a very large scale thing where microaggressions obviously sounds very small. But you, 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 in the book, you show why it's so important. But yeah, yeah if you'd like to... I think it's a real challenge within a within the framework of hate crime because, as you've said, Omar, that the term itself is quite loaded. It, it's hate is an emotive term and it's an elastic concept, and crime suggests that that, that we're talking exclusively about criminal offences. And yet, in reality, when we look at what the police are recording, mm. they're, they're obliged to record incidents and not just criminal offences. Um, and they're required to record offences that aren't motivated by hatred, per mm. se, but by prejudice or hostility, which are very different emotions. So the term mm. itself is something of a misnomer, and it's confusing, mm. and everybody is confused by the term. Academics, um, criminal justice practitioners, members of the public, um, lawmakers. So there is a problem there. But I felt rather frustrated in maybe the first 10 years of my academic career looking at hate crime where everything seemed to be focused on the problems around the hate crime concept. Mm. And we could problematise that concept and those definitions until the cows come home, but it gets us absolutely nowhere. Mm. And we're mm. not in, in the realms of fantasy where we can just make a term disappear and come up with a completely different concept because that may, might make for good reading in an academic paper, but it's just not going to happen yeah. in the real world. Yeah. So, so my focus has been on making the term workable for those who grapple with this in, in the practitioner context, but also for, for victims of hate crime, for members of the everyday public who might encounter hate crime either as a victim or as a witness. So once we start to use that as our, as our beginning points, then I think it's a little bit easier because then it's incumbent on us as researchers to say, okay, what is hate crime? What, how are people affected by this? Mm, and mm. as you've seen from the book, um, many expressions are uh, forms of everyday hostility. Mm. Um, yeah. Hostility directed towards you on the basis of your difference, not necessarily a, an identity characteristic. Often people are targeted not because they're Muslim or not because 
they're perceived to be X, Y, or Z. It's it's because they're different, because mm. you stand out, because you're not one of us. Mm. And I think this concept of difference, in inverted commas, uh, is really important, yeah. too important to dismiss. So that's why I felt it was central to a workable definition. Um, and equally, including microaggressions um, as part of this spectrum, as part of this continuum, I think is really important because often I found that practitioners, not just the police, but often the police, can assume that an incident stops and starts with that incident, mm. and it doesn't. If you want to make sense of a, of a movie, you don't just watch one scene from that movie yeah. and expect to make sense of it. You watch everything uh, mm. in connection with one another um, from start to finish. And that's how we experience hate crime. It's a, it's a whole continuum of different incidents. Some of them individually might feel relatively trivial, mm. but when you experience them as a continuum every day uh, of your life and you see the draining effect it has on your family members, on members of your fellow community, then you start to recognise the impact uh, of, of those, that, that collection of incidents. So that's why I think it's really important to have that inclusive broad framework yeah it made complete sense to me as well and, and when you mentioned about sort of the continued continuing othering i really i really liked the expression between how people are seen as both hyper visible and yet invisible at the same time and it's kind of the worst of, of both worlds in that yeah absolutely absolutely yeah um okay great thanks well I think we've we've done the book a lot there, but I will put I, I put a link into the um, into the show notes so people can see that, and I, I definitely I definitely encourage them to do that. Um, and just just thinking about you and and your work, and um, you know, like the book, we've we've kind of touched on impact a little bit already, but just thinking about you know your career as a whole is is there a way that you is is this is there a kind of a goal in mind, or is there you know is there a certain kind of tangible impact that you're hoping to achieve? Yeah. Um, so impact can sometimes feel like a loaded and, and yeah. often dirty term in yeah. academia. Um, there's, like, people talk about an impact agenda and mm-hmm. the challenges of measuring impact through exercises like the ref, and I totally understand that. But again, for me, like, I can only process things if I simplify them. And impact mm. for me is about making a difference. And that's the whole reason why I got into yeah. academia. I've, always, I've already described to you how I fell into this. It yeah. wasn't really kind of some life plan. But I've, I, I got into it and I've stayed in it because I, I feel that there's value to be done through academic research. It's an enormous privilege that we have um, where we can influence ideas through our teaching, through the research that we conduct, through the information that we share, through the way in which we write. It's, it's an incredible privilege to, to have this job, and I love it. For me personally, I've been hugely fortunate. I've not only been an academic doing amazing research, but I've been given the opportunity to be a director of a, a research centre mm. because I believed in something I was backed, and so, so I've been a director of a research centre. I'm a head of school as well, so... Like these are things that I would never have envisaged and they've happened to me and I'm, I'm really grateful. In terms of what happens next, I, I've no idea, but I've genuinely no idea. <laughs> yeah. But everything is driven by impact for me, everything. Yeah. So whatever I do next, whether it's my teaching, whether it's my research, it has to make a difference to, to, to direct beneficiaries or, beneficiaries or those 
who I'm working with. Otherwise, it has no value to me at all. And I'd rather walk away from academia mm. um, than, than not have an impact. Yeah. Is there a certain part that you really love more than are you somebody who just loves to to write and sit down and and write or is it being with the practitioners is it what what, what bits do you yeah um so i think sounds like I all of it to be honest yeah yeah I, I like most of it not all of it mm. i like most of it i like um like you probably gathered from from, from this podcast i'm a talker right? <laughs> so i like engaging yeah with people i like listening more than talking if i'm really honest um and I like listening to people who I don't get to listen to in everyday mm. life. Mm. So I guess that makes me quite well suited to the kind of empirical research that I've tended to focus on, that qualitative side yeah. of research, um, the ethnography, all of that kind of stuff. I like it's immersive um, mm. and it's, it's deep engagement and I like that. I like working with practitioners um, as well. I think for the early part of my career, I didn't enjoy that so much. I felt quite intimidated mm. um, by by that side of things. And then I, I, I soon got over myself and <laughs> realised, actually, what are you intimidated mm. by? Like, we're yeah. all human, we're all normal. And once I started to make that realisation in my head, it just allowed me to just relax and do the very best that I can. And that's the advice that I give to anybody who I'm working with. Like, don't put yourself under huge amounts of pressure. Just just relax, do the best that you possibly can do, whether you're a student, whether you're a PhD researcher, uh, whether you're an early career academic or a very experienced professor. Do the best that you possibly can do. Yeah. And it's a cliche, but you're, you're going to do good. Yeah, well, great advice there. And I know, I know that you've been on the radio a lot recently and you, you do do lots of media work and i wondered how you fi find that sort of uh, you've talked about simplifying really complex and 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 deep things to get it across to the to an audience and we've talked a little bit about practitioners as a audience here but what about when you're trying to get through to sort of mainstream public especially when we are living through a time of quite populist politics and things like that how have you found sort of that engagement with a broader audience so that's probably the side of the job that I enjoy the most, right. um, the engagement with, with, with the general public. Mm. Often that's, that's through the media. The, the slight caveat I'll say there is that sometimes that engagement is dependent on how a broadcaster decides to frame a debate. Right. So often I can be doing radio interviews and I feel really uncomfortable because I'm invited onto a show and I'm pitted against somebody who has a completely different opinion mm, mm. on something and it feels polarised yeah. and divided yeah. and, um, yeah, I'm not, not very comfortable with that approach. I mm. don't think we need it and yet increasingly, particularly on talk radio, that seems to be the way in which we get our messages across to wider audiences. Yeah. So I'm deeply uncomfortable with that approach um, and... More recently, I've, I've avoided some of those shows. I've, I've been lucky enough to, to be on most radio platforms and some television, but, but yeah, I'm uncomfortable with that kind of contrived um, approach to yeah. broadcasting. But generally, no, I love engaging with public audiences. And I've been very lucky over the last couple of years. I do more and more radio, which isn't exclusively about my research field. Mm. So I get to do every month a show on Radio Leicester um, where I get to choose stories from the newspapers that are lighthearted uh, mm. and talk about them. Oh, and great. Try and inject some positivity um, 
And that's just brilliant yeah. um, because it allows you to, to connect in a way that you, you you wouldn't do ordinarily. So, so yeah, very lucky. No, that sounds great. And, you know, we've talked about curating rooms a little bit already, but, you know, I like to, to finish on a question. There's a hypothetical one that's, and that's, you know, if you could cur curate a room and we could fill it with, say, 50 people, any 50 people you like to talk about whatever you thought would have the greatest impact in terms of your work, who would you put in that room and what would you be saying to them? So let me just check that I've got the question right. So these are people who I could get in the room who I think would benefit from my work, people who... Yeah, just, just in terms of, yeah, how best to, to have positive impact with your work. Obviously, we'd get their consent yeah. to come into the room, <laughs> you know, not just putting them there, but just, just like, it, it's, it's just my way of trying to frame who would you, who do you think it's most important to get through to? And yeah. if, if we really, you know, boil it down to a, a certain kind of message, what, what's the message that you'd like to get to, through to these kind of yeah. people? Okay, well, I definitely not want the room to be an echo chamber. Mm. So, and that was part of my thinking in setting up the Sense of Hate studies mm. years ago, that I wanted to move away from the echo chamber. Sometimes academia can feel like that. Yeah. Um, and we've all got similar values within my discipline. Not all, and that's a generalisation, but generally speaking, um, we all tend to have similar values, similar goals, um, similar followers on Twitter, hmm. you know? You yeah. Can, so you can very quickly convince yourself that you're right um and we might be right we might be wrong but i sometimes think you need to be challenged so in this room i would have people to challenge me so whether mm. it's a room full of brexiteers yeah. whether it's a room full of, of, of boris johnson's cabinet or whatever but i would want those kinds of characters in the room but i want the opportunity to have an audience with them for half an hour mm. um you know, just to talk to them and just to share some of the stories that I've been lucky enough to hear mm. to see whether someone like Pretty Patel could really continue to think and act in the way that she does mm. when confronted with irrefutable evidence. I'd like to think that, that anybody could be a bit more human if they were confronted with some of the stories um, that, 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 that you've seen in the book and yeah. that, that people are, are going through everywhere and anywhere. Um, so yeah, it would be. I, I'm not going to name individuals, but people who don't think the same as me. That's, yeah. that's who I'd want in the room. Great. No, that sounds like it would be. Yeah, really interesting. And who yeah. knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll uh, get a chance to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay yeah. Okay yeah. Okay. Where everyone keep their their two meters while they're having a debate. Yeah. It would be okay. <laughs> <laughs> it would probably be twenty meters. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> we need a big room. Yeah. Well. Professor Neil Chakraborty, thank you so much for making the time to have a chat with me today. Really appreciated it. It was an absolute pleasure. I loved it. Thank you. Oh, great. And yeah, best of luck with everything and the, and the new year um, academically. And like I say, your book with Stevie J. Hardy, Blood, Threats and Fears, is out now. <laughs> and yeah, I'll, uh, the link will be in the, in the show notes. Thanks a lot. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Cheers. Okay, thanks for listening. If you like the podcast and would like to do me or Professor Chakraborty a favour, then all we'd ask is that please share this podcast with somebody else who you think might enjoy it. Whether it's a, a practitioner, a criminologist or a student, all we're trying to do is to spread the positive vibes and impact as far as possible. So thanks a lot and I'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.